Oh God, as we come to You, we come not um, not our, on our own works, not on our own righteousness. We come to You, God, by Your mercy, that You would look down upon the blood of Jesus who suffered on the cross and count His righteousness toward our righteousness and such kindness that is And Lord, I would pray that then we would enter into Your presence with boldness, realizing everything that we have in Jesus Christ. God, give us a heart and a passion for You like the psalmist did, who said, O God, You are my God, I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You, my flesh yearns for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. God, give us that kind of heart to realize that the the way to You has been opened up and that we can draw near to You. May we cry with David, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Lord, help us to see that through the blood of Christ that way is opened up, that we can come even this morning into the holy temple that David merely longed to be in. We can come by the blood of Christ. God, may You give us a a heart that says as the deer pants for the water brooks, so our soul pants for You. May our soul, O Lord, thirst for God, for the living God. How lovely are Your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! May our soul long and even yearn for the courts of of the Lord. As the psalmist says in Psalm 84, a day in Your courts is better than a thousand outside. And I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Lord, impress upon our hearts that we can come and draw near to You through Christ. For You, O Lord, are a rock, and to You we call. You are the portion of our inheritance and our cup. You support our lot. Lord, we love You. May You be our strength. You are a rock, and in You we take refuge. Whom have we have in heaven but You, O Lord? And besides You, may we desire nothing on earth. I pray, O Lord, as I preach and open up this text from Hebrews chapter 10, I pray that it would give us and stir within us a longing to seek You and to long for You and to pursue You and depend upon You as we draw near to You. So be with us during this time. Open truths unseen we've not seen before. May they become clear in my mind, in all of our minds. And we those who, who long to passionately draw near to You. Not merely now, Sunday morning, a time of prayer but throughout the week, with every waking moment, may we pray constantly. May we depend upon You with our every step. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. In our exposition of the book of Hebrews, we come this morning to our next text, which is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. However, 
We're only going to get through verse 22 this morning because I want us to just linger here on these words. They're so rich for us this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's a, a great text. It really, in many ways, is the turning point of the book of Hebrews. Until this point, the majority of the book of Hebrews has been focused on proving one point. And what's the point he's been trying to prove? Let everyone together, what's the point he's trying to prove? Jesus is better. Absolutely. He's better than anything the Old Testament has to offer. It's at this point that it's almost as if he's the prosecuting attorney and his point has been made and he's sitting down. There's no need anymore in the book of Hebrews to put forth reasons why Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. better than Moses. Better than Joshua. Better than Aaron. Better than Abraham. Better than all the high priests. He has come forth with a better covenant which has been, cleansed a better tabernacle on the basis of better sacrifices. The case has been made. And now, it's really time to turn to application. And you can see that by how verse 19 begins. It begins with a, a therefore. Now, they say when you see a therefore, you want to see what the therefore is there for. Sometimes it's a big therefore. Hinging a whole book. And sometimes it's just a little therefore. Or just hinging just a, a few verses together. In this case, it is really hinging the whole book because at this point, no longer do we see the, the writer arguing that Jesus is better. He's not arguing that. He's, he's sort of done. And instead, his focus is towards application. He, he's got two of the most strongest warning sections in all of Hebrews coming in chapter 10 and in chapter 12, just exhorting the people to, to stand fast and press on and continue on and don't be unbelieving. In chapter 11... He's really trying to persuade his, his readers to believe as, as we see through the hall of faith, which we'll get to in these next several months. I'm looking forward to that. But all these people who believed, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, even Jacob and Joseph and even more. Time is going to fail him is what he says in verse 32. Of all the different people who, who by faith conquered all these different ways. And the reason why he puts that forth is to persuade the people to believe that Jesus is better. And then in chapter 12, he urges believers to press on even when things are difficult. Even when you're facing discipline for your disobedience. Press on. We have an unshakable kingdom. It is better than anything else we have here on earth. And chapter 13 is all application. Just command after command after command after command after command. But there's a lesson to be learned here, just even in the scope of the book of Hebrews. We're right here kind of on the, the hinge point. Don't ever think that Christianity is a matter of do's and don'ts. 
Um, happened to see a little bit of a, of a preacher on TV this week, a little bit. I, I went to uh, fix my car, and uh, there in the waiting room on Fox, it was like 8 o'clock in the morning, Joyce Myers was there. And I don't recommend her at all in any way. But what's very interesting is that she just said command after command, do, 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 do. It was all about just doing stuff. It wasn't anything about what Christ has done and you do out of what Christ has done. But that's the premise of the Bible. Look at what Christ has done and let everything that you do flow out of that. Before duty must come doctrine. Before practice must come precept. Before application must come apprehension. We must know why it is that we obey before we know what to obey. And, it, and, and catch this, it's the why that fuels the what. You try to just do the what and do all the things that Christians do, without the why, you'll find your Christian life to be powerless. And knowing the why before doing the what also keeps us from moralism. And moralism, church family, is deadly in the eyes of God. It is deadly. You know the greatest moralists of all time were the Pharisees? There's no greater moralist than the Pharisees. If you try to say, oh, my life matches up more righteous than the Pharisees, on an external level, they got you beat hands down. They're praying far more than you are. They're fasting far more than you are. Maybe they're giving far more than you are. They're seeking to keep themselves separated from the world far more than you are. And yet inside, Jesus says, outwardly you're like these whitewashed tombs, but inside you have dead men's bones. And the most scathing rebukes that Jesus ever gave was to the Pharisees. Those who maybe externally live to obey the Scriptures, they miss the heart of the matter. They put the donkey before the cart. And so interested in what they do, they miss the why. And missing the why, they miss the entire thing. So let's learn here that for nine and a half chapters, the book, the writer of the book of Hebrews, as he's given us a clear picture how Jesus is better than anything else a Jewish religion has to offer, that that's the important foundation for anything that we would apply. That's why we sing songs Sunday mornings about the cross. That's why we sing about God, reminding who God is, reminding our sinfulness and the work of what Jesus has done so we might rejoice in our standing before Him that everything that we do flows from that. Now, it's not that he hasn't given application before because he's given application. We've gone through several warning sections which are just straight applications. Chapter 2, in chapter 3 and 4, and in chapter 6, strong application. But now there's more of an emphasis upon that. So we finish the epistle. And this is, by the way, a biblical example, biblical pattern. Romans, it's 11 chapters of doctrine. And then come the application. Verse chapters 12 to 16. In fact, even in the book of Romans, there's no point of application given until chapter 6. So important is it to understand our sin and the righteousness that comes through Christ. Now, faith is imputed to the righteousness. How we sinned through Adam and now that we, we, we've sinned in Adam. And now the righteousness has come through Christ. And now we who believe are dead to sin so we shouldn't still live in it. That's the application that comes. In Ephesians, it's three chapters of the blessings of Christ and it's the application that comes. In Colossians, it's two chapters of the supremacy of Christ followed by two chapters of how to apply it in our lives. In Galatians, it's two chapters of testimony followed by two chapters expositing the doctrine of justification by faith alone and then two chapters of application. It happens on a macro level. It happens on a micro level. There are verses in Scripture like, like this. We love because He first loved us. It's not just that we love. Christianity isn't we love. 
Christianity is that God loves us. And He loved us in Jesus Christ. And because of His love, we love. Do you see the difference? There's a huge difference between that. Or 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. It's the very fact that God has called us. We're citizens of a different nation. We're citizens of heaven. We are aliens and strangers here upon the earth. That's why we abstain from the fleshly lusts that wage war with our soul. It compels us. empowers us. The indicative is the ground for the imperative. What's true is the reason for what we do, what we do. Well, let's look back at Hebrews. Even on a micro level, we're going to see in verses 19, 20, and 21, a review, basically, of chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And then he's going to get to the application. And you can see that each of the points of application are prefaced by the little words, let us. Let us. That's let us, not let us. Okay, guys? Kids, not let us. Alright, this is the... Let us, let us, verse 22, let us draw near, verse 23, let us hold fast, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And just for the sake of our own hearts, I just want to slow down and just take one command this morning. We're going to look at draw near. I'll be gone for three weeks and then we'll come back that next Sunday and look at let us hold fast and what that means. And then... Well, I'm not sure if I'll spend one week on that or not, but perhaps one week on that and then a week on 24 and 25, let us consider how to stimulate to love and good deeds. just want us to slow down here and bask this in before we get whacked with one of the hardest warning passages in verse 26 and following. So, my message this morning is entitled, Draw Near. My opening prayer, I just told you the aim of my message. I want us to feel a, a heart to draw near to God. This is the essence of all religion. This is the essence of all Christianity. This is the essence of all godliness. To so live and so walk in a way that yes, we're walking here upon the earth, but in many, many ways we are walking with God in heaven because we are right there with Him. And we do that, we'll realize that our, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual force of wickedness because that's where we're living. It says in Ephesians 2 that we are raised up and see with Christ. That's where we are. It says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, since you've been raised up, see with Christ. Seek the things above. That's what it means to, to draw near. It's, it's not merely to pray. It's to, it's to, yes, it's to pray always is what it is. As Paul says, First Thessalonians 5.17, it means to to constantly just commune with God every waking moment of the day, just trusting Him. I love the example of Nehemiah when he was in the presence of the king. The king asked him a question about why is he so sad? He was sad because Jerusalem was downcast and, and he said that he prayed and he said. So he was even praying right before he spoke. And such is how we ought to live in total dependence upon the Lord, drawing near to Him. Now, this isn't the first time we're exhorted here to draw near. You can see in chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We'll look at that passage here in a little bit, but there's talking about the, the same thing of drawing near to God. In chapter 7, verse 19, speaks about how the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, there is in Christ Jesus a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. I know one man put the theme of Hebrews as this, draw near, hold fast. 
That was, that was his, his whole uh, outline of the book. And you can see that Jesus is better, so draw near and hold fast, right? Press on, keep going. Draw near. I have two points this morning. They both come from the text. First is the basis of it, and then is how we do it. My first point here is why. Verses 19 through 21. The text gives us two answers of why it is that we should draw near. And each of them are identified with the word since. Look there in verse 19. Let's just catch the structure and then we'll unpack the words. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is flesh, that's the first reason, and since, verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's your second reason, and then come these three commands. Let's draw near. But the drawing near is based upon the since. And there should be an eagerness and a desire to do these things. Because based upon the reality, which is so tremendously great, we ought to do these things. Okay, we're leaving for vacation um, tomorrow morning. And um, I'm driving to church, and um, I'm with Carissa and SR in the car. And uh, my, my question to them is, okay guys, what, what time should we shoot for to leave tomorrow morning? Like 4 o'clock in the morning or 5 o'clock in the morning? And you know what they said? Okay, now what, what, if, let, let me back. what if I asked you all, okay, do you want to get up tomorrow morning at 4 o'clock or do you want to get up at 5 o'clock? What are you saying? Well, you're saying like 7.30 maybe. That's what time I want to get up. Right? But there are some things you've got to know about my kid's life, about what's going to take place here over the next couple of weeks. We've been preparing for our vacation. We've got a trailer. We've got everything set. We're, you know, this past week, we've been, Avon says we've been like little elves. We've been up to 1.30, 2 o'clock, kind of every morning, kind of trying to get a bunch of things in place. But um, since we've been working so hard to leave on our vacation... And since everything is all set, and since we're ready to go, what time do you guys want to go? You want to go at 4 o'clock? Or what do you think they said? They said 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, 2 o'clock. In fact, when do you do it? Say 3 o'clock, Chris? Is that? You said 4. Okay, so I'm driving here, and I forgot something. So I, I dropped the kids off here, and so I'm driving home, and my second trip, I've got Hannah in the car, and I asked the same question to Hannah, right? And, and what did you say? I said, would you leave 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock? What did you say? She did say 3 o'clock. So she wanted to. I said, that means you need to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. But what's happening here? There's an eagerness. There is a desire because of these other things. And, and church family, I just... You struggle with your prayer life? Do you struggle with your prayer life? I struggle. I'm a pastor. I struggle with my prayer life. What's the thing that's going to help you over struggling with your prayer life? The senses. Right? The reasons why. This, this is so great and so awesome that you ought to be, be compelled to say, absolutely, I'm going to commune with you and draw near to you, O Lord. First reason why we should draw near is because we can. Because we can. Verse, verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. You know, one of the things that we lack as Christians is the whole concept of exclusion from God. I mean, from our standpoint, it seems as if we've always been able to come to God. We're, you know, Christian kind of just dominates our society a little bit. We've seen a Jesus. We, 
We see churches on every corner, have every opportunity to come to God. Some of you grown up in Christians' homes. You have every opportunity just to be there with God. But that was not the case for the Jews of the first century. This is primarily kind of addressed to the Jews. Therefore, brethren, these are the Jewish people, the Jewish believers. It was totally different for them. They had, they had an exclusion when it came to God. For instance, they had physical barriers. And we come to church, you know, or any church, right? Doors are open wide, often greeters. Come in, hey, why don't you come in? Oftentimes ushers help you sit down. Very, very open and available. If you were coming to church, whatever, the temple, the Jewish times, you know what you'd be greeted with? You'd be walking along and someone would say, <coughs> excuse me, buddy, you can't come past here. It's like, what? He said, no, are you a priest? Uh, no, I'm not a priest. Then you can't come in here. And it would be arms out and you would be stopped and prevented. Only the priest could pass by into the holy place. And then even the priests would never go into the Holy of Holies unless they were the high priest. And he wouldn't go in all the time. He'd only go in once a year. And once a year, I figure, how long do you think he was there? I've explained to you several times what takes place. How long do you think he was in the holy place? Once a year. Seven minutes? Probably six. You're close, though. (laughs) It all taught exclusion. It all taught keep away. The sacrifices made their distance from God apparent as well. Whenever they sinned, they needed to bring this sacrifice. In order to be made right to God, right? They sinned and there was this, this barrier. They needed to bring this sacrifice to make things right. And apart from that, they weren't allowed to enter into the worship. But, but hear it afresh. In Jesus, it all has changed. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. To the Jews, this would have been shocking. We have access to God directly. We can confidently come in. Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? And for these Jews, it was was a huge transition because for, for years they heard the message, do not enter. And now in Jesus, they hear the message, come on in. We'll leave the light on for you. Make yourself right at home. Rather than a stop sign, they're now greeted with a hand of welcome. You can come through the blood of Jesus. In fact, you can come boldly. You can come confidently, is what it says here in verse 19. We have confidence. We have a surety. That's why in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, let us draw near with confidence. The, the same thing. And, and, and if he says that twice, we need to draw near with confidence. What does it mean? Is it, there are some who might, who might even come into God's presence a little, with a little trepidation. Like, can I, can I really come here? Can I, can I really access you? Yes, you can access God. You don't need a priest. You go straight to Him because you have a priest. Jesus Christ. And how has that confidence come? That confidence comes by the blood of Jesus. Now, that's really review. We looked at the end of chapter 9. Perhaps you remember a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon, verses 15 and following, just speaking about the necessity of blood to come before the Lord. When the Old Covenant was inaugurated, it was inaugurated with blood. Moses made those sacrifices and sprinkled the people, and he sprinkled the tabernacle, sprinkled the vessel of the ministry, sprinkled the book, with the blood, because everything, according to law, says is cleansed with blood. And we need blood to enter into the holy place. And the good news of the Gospel is this, the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed, and through that blood, we can enter the holy place. 
It's as if um, the blood of Jesus becomes our security badge. Perhaps you've been to a secure place. Maybe not. But I, I know you know what it's like to be in a high security area. You can't enter unless you have the proper credentials. You, you drive up to the parking lot and you're, you're greeted there by the guard in the security shack. You stop and identify yourself before you go in. Oh yeah, I'm Steve Brandon. I, I work here. And then in order to get in the building, you've got to take your, your badge you know, and swipe it across the door and then you open up the door. And, and all the time when you're in the building, you've got to be wearing your badge or else you're going to be stopped by somebody. And if you didn't have a badge, you've got to like con the guy at the security place. You've got to somehow sneak in after someone else opens the door and then you walk around the corridors like hiding, like, like all the movies that always happens, right? But if you have a badge, you can walk boldly before anybody with no problem at all. You know you won't be questioned. You know you go everywhere you want. Because you belong there. But if you don't belong there, it's a little apprehensive. I remember working in the, the hospital. And, um, you know, whenever you walk by a hospital, you ever see signs to the, um, the operating room? What does it say? Keep out. You can't walk here. Nobody there. But if you're an employee and you work there like I did in the computer stuff, what I do? I just walked right past that sign, ignored that, went right on in. And there are places like that every place. Authorized personnel only. Keeps everybody out except for those who are around. It's like, oh, let's ignore that sign. And you just kind of walk right. That's how we can come to God because we can come now boldly. We can ignore those no admittance signs because they've all been taken down by the blood of Jesus. And notice where you can go. This is astonishing. We can enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. The holy place. What's that a reference to? Kids, what's that a reference to? The holy place. Maybe I stumped you, huh? Andrew. Where's Andrew? He's got. Where's the holy place? What's the holy place? Huh? The temple. Thanks for bailing us all out, Andrew. I appreciate that. The temple in Jerusalem. But this is talking about even the heavenly temple, which is in many ways more holy and more righteous than the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, we can go into the very presence of God. And you tell that to a Jew? No Jew was ever permitted to go into the presence of God. In fact, when people got into the presence of God, what they do? They fell down. They were broken. They were destroyed. They were ruined. Do you remember when Isaiah entered the holy place? He saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lofty, the train of His robe filling the temple. He saw the seraphim flying around, each of them saying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. He saw that the foundations of the earth trembled while the temple was filling with smoke. And you saw just the holiness of God. He saw God in some some sense. He saw the temple and He, he saw just what John saw, right? The, the bright light coming out from the, the center of the throne with the sounds and peals of lightning and thunder and the, the creatures around the throne. He saw that and what did He do? He fell down. He was undone. Isaiah then said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Isaiah 6.5 The King James Version says it like, I, I like, I am undone. 
I am naked. I am exposed. I am vulnerable. I am destroyed. Here I am. I see the holy and righteous God and I, I'm, I'm sinful. I'm undone. To come into God's presence will ruin the most holy and righteous of men. But, through Jesus Christ, we... For sinners have been saved by grace. We have confidence, it says in verse 19, to enter the most holy place. To say, how can this be? How can we who are sinners enter this place where no sin can be? It's because of verse 20. Because we have a new and living way. We enter by the blood of Jesus. Here it is, by a new and living way. It's not new to us. We've been in Hebrews for so long, right? We're New Testament believers. But it was new to the Jews. They never dreamed of entering into God's presence boldly. Sure, there are those who are following hard after God and seeking the Lord earnestly, but never quite like this. I mean, they always sought God from a distance. And they, they longed for Him, but they knew there's going to be some distance. But now, by a new and living way, it's different than David experienced. This is different than Abraham ever experienced. This is different than Joseph ever experienced because this is a new and living way. This is the new covenant brought in. The new way to God through Jesus Christ. Not through the sacrifice of the Old Testament. It's through Him. Now, of course, it was prophesied. It was told. The Old Testament Scriptures prophesied of a crucified Messiah who would bear the sins of many, bring us into His presence. That was surely there. A good picture is given in verse 20 of how Jesus fits into this. He says, by a new and living way which He inaugurated. That is, He began or He he instigated for us. That was when He died upon the cross 2,000 years ago. Through the veil, that is, His flesh. The writer here describes the the entrance by the, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, as that veil in the Old Testament. You remember the veil? The veil was this big, heavy curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And um, it was there, I think it was, it was uh, 30 feet tall is what I remember. Maybe it was 15, how, how, 15. I forget how tall it was. It was tall anyway. And it was there and it kept people out and never they went past that veil. But when Christ died upon the cross, that veil was torn from top to bottom, showing that it was an act of God, ripping it open. And the Jews must have been terrified. They said, oh, it's ripped open! We can see the Holy of Holies! And God would say, yes, you can see the Holy of Holies! Because you can come in now. That miraculous event was a, as an object lesson to describe how we can enter into the holy place now by the blood of Jesus. And this text then uses that veil as a picture of His flesh And think about the imagery, it's pretty much the same, that Jesus Christ Himself was ripped apart on the cross. And when He was, it's a little bit like the the way into the holy place was opened up for us. And it it was through His, His death and the dying, just like that veil, just through the dying and the ripping and the ruining of the veil, that then we can enter in. And that's the picture of Christ. Why should we draw near? Because we can. We have access to the throne of God, so let's draw near. There's a second reason, though, why it is that we should draw near. Verse 21, we should draw near because we have a great priest. 
it's not merely we can enter, but we got somebody on the other side waiting to welcome us and greet us. Now, for the past several months, we've been over this again and again and again and again and again. It's been the writer's main point since chapter 5. If you look back in chapter 5, verse 1, he starts talking there about priests. And throughout the entire epistle of Hebrews, I didn't count it up exactly, but something like 35 mentions of the word priest. Talking about the, the Old Covenant priest or Jesus being priest. This is one of the last. There's only one more reference to priest after this. It is the culmination of four chapters of arguments. Chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Maybe five chapters. Just all talking about how Jesus is the priest. And His priesthood, we found out in our messages, is perfect. His priesthood is a royal priesthood. He's a worthy priest because of the way He lived. His priesthood gives a better hope. His priesthood, unlike the the priests of Aaron, were founded upon an oath. It's been forever. His priesthood is. Because according to the order of Melchizedek, who lives forever, He is a pure priest. He is our final priest. He is our perfect priest. Just again and again, Jesus Christ placing Him up there as a priest, and now it says that He is our great priest priest. And this is a huge fact that we have a priest. In fact, it's the main point of what had been said. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In other words, we have a a priest who's waiting in the heavens, not one who's merely here upon the earth. And the implication for us is this. Since Jesus is our great high priest, we have every reason then to draw near. We have a friend beyond the veil who's on our side. He's not an enemy. You're not going to enter the Holy of Holies and be destroyed. He's not someone who's going to attack you or stab you when you enter in. He's not going to be someone seeking your harm. And, and, and catch this, nor are we drawing near to someone who might reject us. It's not like we're going to Jesus like we would a job interview and He'll look at you and He'll say, eh, eh. No, we come by faith in Him and He receives us. We come by faith. It's not like you're coming as a salesperson into a, into a place to have a potential sale and it might go good and it might go bad. No, Jesus is on the other side, arms open to welcome all who draw near to Him in faith. And He's seeking our good. And He can help us. Look back now at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Same argument. Same words almost. But this has a little bit different slant here. Verse 14, Therefore, since... There's that since word again. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, right? Since Jesus is there waiting for us, Jesus the Son of God... Let us hold fast our confession. We'll get to that in four weeks. Verse 15, Because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. In other words, this high priest is not only a great high priest, but he's a great able to sympathize high priest. Verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, see our priest on the other side of the veil, our, our priest there is a, um, like I said, he's a kind, sympathetic, helpful, gracious, merciful priest. 
The emphasis of verse 15 is that He can sympathize with us. I mean, He was a human like us. He knows what temptation is, yet He conquered. He can help us in temptation. And then in verse 16, it's all about Him giving mercy. It's about Him giving grace. In fact, He's even called the throne of grace. He's going to give us mercy. We can find grace to help us there. See, Jesus is a living person waiting to greet us and extend His grace to people like you and people like me. It's what I need. It's what we all need. We need mercy and grace. In this sense, He's a little bit like a, a gracious grandmother who has done everything for you. She's prepared everything for your turkey Thanksgiving dinner. It's all prepared. She's waiting there at the door and you drive up. She sees you drive up. She pops out and you come in and maybe you have a grandmother like this. I'm not sure. I remember I had a grandmother that every time I gave her a hug, her whiskers scratched my face. (laughs) In fact, that's that's your mom. My Uncle Lynn is visiting here today. And uh, I remember Grandma Kay was about that tall. And uh, she'd just come and give me a big hug. And if I was out of shape, she'd take her cane and, and whip me into shape a little bit. But, but imagine a grandmother who comes and welcomes you at the door, asks about you, sits you down, feeds you a meal, and, and all she wants to do is, is know about what's going on in your life, like you can do nothing wrong. That's a bit about how Christ receives it. He's just receiving us. He, he's a great priest who is welcoming to us. And so is Christ to all of us who draw near. In fact, this is His aim. This is His goal. This is His life. This is His occupation right now. This is what busies His days. You say, what's Jesus doing right now? He's praying for us. He's receiving sinners. He's granting mercy and grace and kindness all the time. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. And and here you see Jesus always living to make intercession and able then to save forever those who draw near to Him. And so I just say, are you going to draw near to Him? What more reason do you need? This isn't a text this morning that's calling you to prayer by means of guilt. I'm not saying, oh, how much you praying? Maybe you need to pray more. Jaswell Sanders says if ever he wants to humble a Christian leader, he just starts to ask them about their prayer life. Instantly humbles every Christian leader. But that's not what this is. This isn't just saying, hey, I'm going to humble you, I'm going to humiliate you, I'm going to say, go and do more. No, what this is, is, is this is a... This is a call. We got such a great opportunity. We can enter in. We got someone on the other side who's going to help us. Why wouldn't we go? Why wouldn't we go and spend time with Christ? Why wouldn't we go and rely upon Him? Why not seek Him and, and cling to Him and abide in Him and rest in Him and dwell in Him and pant for Him and thirst for Him, which are all synonyms for what we're talking about drawing near. We need to draw together to, with Jesus much like married couples draw together to one another. If they spend time with each other, if they live life together, and they share their lives every moment of every day, that's what we're called to do with Christ. The attitude here is, the, is that of the businessman who, who hates it when his job pulls him away and he's traveling out and about. You know, he's gone for a couple of days at a time. And often, 
as often as he can when he's away. He picks up the phone and says, Honey, I miss you. I love you. How are the kids? Anything happened today? Can I do anything for you? I'm coming home in a few days. I can't wait to see you. Bye-bye. That's what this text is like. We have such opportunity, such privilege, and there ought to be such love for Christ that we can't help but to draw near to Him. In fact, this is a call of irresistibility. The businessman can't help but to call home. Because his heart's at home. Nobody's forcing him. Make sure you call home now. Because that's where his heart is. Nobody's telling him. Teaching him, well, let me, let me describe to you how your heart aches when you're gone. That's not what it's about. His, his heart aches naturally. Because that's where his heart is. And so also, I'd say our hearts need to be there in the heavenlies where Jesus is, where He's, he's there ready to receive us. I'm not calling you this morning to say you need to pray more. It's not my call. My call is just look at Jesus. He is so great and awesome and given us a place and is going to receive you with mercy and grace. What else can you do but come and draw near to Him? You know, there's something about the word free which compels us to indulge. Isn't that right? You enter a buffet restaurant... And maybe it's not free on the front end, but you pay, and then once you get in the front restaurant, what happens? <laughs> stomach meat food, food meat stomach, right? And, and how many of you ever gone out of a buffet restaurant hungry? Okay, some of you. Caleb, because you just keep eating and eating and eating and eating and eating and eating and eating. How many granola bars did you have on our trip to the... Was kind of pretty soon, pretty lot, huh? Little boys maybe, but we just eat me. I know that I walk out of uh, buffets <laughs> like this, you know. I'm just, I'm, uh, next time I'm not going to eat so much. Why? Because it's free. And you're, just, you're, just, you're going to see that it happens. A few weeks ago, our family went to the Riverhawks game. And uh, Arby's was running a promotion. And some of you, how many of you were there? It was like free faith night. So we got free tickets. And so we get free tickets. We'll go to the free game. And so we went to the free game. And uh, they had RBI. It was like a... Arby's has this promotion, RBs, RBI, I think that's pretty, pretty special. But anyway, um, a certain guy designated a certain at-bat, if he gets an RBI on that at-bat, free roast beef sandwiches all around. And uh, he got an RBI. It's a woohoo! So we had seven tickets. And um, where do you think we went for dinner? It's the next day you had to use them. Where do you think we were going for dinner the next day? We went to Arby's. Now, unfortunately, we, our two oldest were gone, and so they didn't have it. So we had seven tickets for seven roast beef sandwiches for five of us. And, you know, it's Hannah and then Steffi and David. And so we got five, and boy, it took everything within us not to get two more, just to, just to take them home and put them in the refrigerator. We almost did. And we talked about it. Should we? Should we not? But, you know, it won't be very good tomorrow. But, but there's something about free that almost like compels us. We've got to use those tickets to, to get in, to use this. And so likewise, that's the argument of this text. Look at how great it is. Look at how great the access. What else are you going to do? Aren't you going to draw near? Of course you're going to draw near. Why draw near? Because we can, because we have our priest. Let's look at what. And again, we're just going to look at verse 22. Running short of time here today, but we'll be okay. Verse 22. We'll just look at this verse. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, 
having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here we're given counsel of how it is that we ought to draw near. Given four characteristics or four ways in which we should draw near. Looking for a point, how. We've seen the why, now we're the how. How is it that we should draw near? First, draw near with sincerity. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. That is, a a true heart is a literal translation of the text. Not double-minded, not mushy-washy, not, well, maybe I can come. No, God wants us to come in boldly, not wishy-washy, totally in truth. The idea here is that our heart's fully engaged with our actions. There's nothing deceitful about our coming. We are just true and transparent. God, here we come. God doesn't want us to play games in coming to Him. He wants us to draw near because we want to draw near. He doesn't want us to, 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 to pray when we don't want to pray. He doesn't want us to come and speak with Him when we want to be doing something else. There will be no deceit in our drawing near. Unless you think, well, that never happens. If I pray, of course I want to pray. No, the Pharisees, they came with a false heart. They stood high and prayed before everybody standing and praying in the synagogues and on the street corners so they could be seen by everybody. They were coming falsely. Judas came falsely because he wanted the money bag. Simon the magician came falsely because he wanted the Holy Spirit. He thought he could pay to get the Holy Spirit. People come all the time to God like that. And God says, I don't want that. Come sincerely. Come in truth. Because God can discern this because He can look on the inside. He sees what's on the inside of man, not on the outside. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel 16:9 that he looks on the inside not the outside. He sees whether we are drawing near truly or not. And I say, how's your heart this morning? When you come to God, you come with a sincere, true heart. Cuz God can detect your falsity a mile away. The key to coming with a pure heart is chapter 8 in the new covenant. It's not anything that you're going to do. It's going to be God's work in you. God says, I will write my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. See, when God writes on our hearts, cleanses us from within, transforms us, gives us pure desires, that's when we can come to Him. And that's the only way your heart will be true. It's the only way your heart will be sincere. Is when God changes you from the inside out. So really in order to follow this, you really need to pray and say, God, help me to come sincerely. That's a great way to pray. If you feel like something's not right in your heart, say, God, help, help my heart so I can come to you in a sincere way. That would be a great prayer to pray. Let's look at the second way. We need to pray not only with sincerity, but with faith. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Boy, and we're going to be talking about faith when we get to chapter 11 a lot. But let me just say this, that in drawing near, faith is crucial. Faith is essential. Faith is necessary. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. See, God has made the world in such a way that we need to believe in order to come to Him. He could have made a world which revealed Himself to everybody. He'd come just based on, on scientific fact and yes, I know and yes, I see, but here we need to come by faith, that yes, by faith I have seen. 
And there surely are good reasons to come. But we need to come to Him by faith. We need to believe that we're coming into the Holy of Holies. We need to believe that the blood of Christ is going to get us through. We need to believe that Jesus on the other side is going to help us. We need to believe that Jesus brought in this new way. We need to believe that He's better than all these things. In fact, Jesus is so much better that He's not just an option. He's their only option. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. And that's what faith is. God, I've got no other way to You except through Jesus Christ. And I'm trusting and depending entirely upon Him. And there'll be failures in our lives. We won't come with a true heart. But we can come by faith. Faith in the atoning work of the blood of Christ. Not trusting our own merits, but believing that in Jesus all our sins are wiped away. That we can come saying, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply the cross I cling, coming with nothing. That's how He wants us to come. He wants us to come in light of the Gospel. That there's nothing that that commends us before God. We come empty before Him. And that's what faith is. It's coming empty before God and trusting entirely upon Him. That's how we need to come. Come with sincerity. Come with faith. Thirdly, we need to come with purity of heart. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. One of the great failures of the Old Covenant was that it was merely external. It's focused on, on, on cleansing the flesh rather than inside in the heart. But the New Covenant is so much better. It cleans deep within us even to the conscience sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You can see the, the difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. It says this, If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, if, if that just sanctifies over here in the flesh and the external, how much more will the blood of Christ through the, through the eternal Spirit offer Himself without blemish to God? Cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. You see the Old Covenant just washing externally and, and it says how much more will Christ wash us internally and cleanse us even deep to our consciences. Now here's the interesting thing about this also as well. Is that it's not that we have a clean conscience to come before the Lord ourselves. We all know and are aware of our sins. They might stand before you. might have others point them out to you. They might repent over them. We know of our sins. And, and, and our, our conscience is basically our, our policeman inside of us. It's a blessing to have a tender conscience. Say, oh, look over there. Oh, you blew it over there. Oh, you blew it over there. We're not going to have a clean conscience in and of ourselves. We need our consciences washed. Look at what verse 22 says having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. See what that implies? It implies we have an evil conscience. But that that evil conscience is then sprinkled clean. And that's how we draw near. Drawing near in faith, believing that, that the sins we have, which our conscience speaks of, are, are actually on Christ. And Christ has borne those. And when you believe and embrace that, your conscience can be clear as day. My sins are on Him. I can come because I know they're forgiven. I'm clean and washed righteous. 
So as your conscience brings sin into remembrance, cast them upon the cross. Cast them upon the cross. And then come clean and draw near to Christ. Well, finally, the fourth reason, way we should walk, not only with sincerity, with faith, with purity of heart, also purity of life. Verse 22, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and, here it is, our bodies washed with pure water. The glories of the New Covenant is it reaches deep into our hearts, but it doesn't end there. The blessing of the New Covenant extends to newness of life as well, and that's the point here of verse 22. It's not only clean hearts, it's clean lives. As we draw near to God, it's important to be walking in purity before Him. Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4 says this, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully. Right? You want to come to the presence of the Lord? Who can come? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. Those people can come. Who can come? You know, in actuality, we can't. It's only one who can come. It's Jesus who come. But we can come because we've been cleansed by His blood. And that's what it's speaking about here. The, the picture here is a, of bodies washed with pure water. I mean, it's just a symbolic of a life that's pure. Now, some picture here that being washed with pure water is a reference to baptism. When we profess our faith in Christ and are symbolically as we are dunked into the water and come out of the water like we had last week uh, at Olson Lake. Those of you who attended were blessed by that time. It, it's a symbol. It's an outward reality. It's an outward representation of an inward reality. Right? That's what baptism is. And people picture that, what that's talking about here. But the problem with this is that if it really is that I've been washed in baptism, then what's He telling me to do? Come boldly because of something that took place 20 years ago when I was baptized. That's like no help. To look back to this event 20 years ago, we ought to find comfort today to say, hey, Christ is washing me. He is cleansing me. Sadly though, even across the church in America, there are many people who look to a past event to help them today. Oh, I remember when I prayed that prayer. Forget the fact that my life is a wreck. I don't have any heart for God. But I prayed that prayer back then. It's not helping you. What's helping you is seeing Christ's transforming power, right? Ephesians 5, the washing of the water with the Word. That everything that baptism symbolizes is true in our life. There's a purity of life that our, that our bodies are, are washed clean and, and, and He's working in us a, a righteousness practically to live out day to day. Verse 22 speaks about just the purity of life is what I, I believe it is. It's not baptism. And this is important drawing near to Christ because, I say this, when your life isn't right, you won't have a desire to draw near. You won't. But you show me someone who draws near to the Lord on a consistent basis, and I'll show you someone who lives a pure life. I've often heard it said, regarding the Bible, that this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. And similarly, I think you can say a drawing near to God will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from drawing near to God. 
that's really the exhortation here to have a have a clean body, to have a have a bias wash. Don't be involved in deceitful wickedness. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. But love the ways of Christ. And that's how we draw near. So let us draw near with sincerity, with faith, purity of heart, and purity of life. I leave you with one last verse and then we'll pray. And um, James chapter 4, verse 8 is a great promise for us. Just the next book over, James, Hebrews, James chapter 4, verse 8. Small command right there in the midst of everything. It says in James 4, verse 8, Draw near to God. What does it say? And He will... Draw near. It's a great promise, right? As we do draw near, we know on the other side He's going to draw near to us. Church family, this is your blessed life. It's to draw near to Christ. It's the application that's given twice in the book of Hebrews, at least. There are others that allude to the same thing. But may that be what our life is about, drawing near to Jesus. So let's pray. Father, I pray that You would stir in our hearts with a heart and a passion to, to enter into the holy place. May we realize why, what a great privilege we have. And may we do so then in a, in a right way. Not coming deceitfully in any way before You, Lord, but with faith and trusting You. Pure hearts, pure lives. Lord, then may You help us and carry us through from day to day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.